Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Warney, and joining me on the line, as always, is Ethan Sachs. Ethan, we finally made it. The end of Crimson Vow. I thought it would never come. I mean, just think back to a year ago and how we were in Zendikar Rising Purgatory for like four and a half months. Everyone's talking about Vow being out for so long. This is half as long as we waited in the fall last year. I don't know how we made it then, and I don't know how we made it now. <laughs> it's so funny. I think perhaps in the lifetime of our podcast, this is the format that we have disagreed about the most in terms of like personal enjoyment, right? Yeah, I think that's very fair. Yeah, that's crazy to me. Yeah, I mean, I guess it was bound to happen at some point. You, you and I are usually at lockstep. So you were playing it yesterday on stream, though. And were you did you enjoy it? Are you still like ugh, just trudging through it? What's going on? I hadn't played it in, I don't know, two, three weeks. And I was thinking, oh, yeah, this format's OK. And then my first game, my opponent played Halana Elena on turn four. <laughs> I lost. And I was thinking, oh, yeah, for why I hate this format. Oh, my God. Yeah, but that doesn't happen every single game. It doesn't, but it happens often enough, I think, to leave a sour taste in my mouth. Wow. All right. Well, we're going to run through our patented 50 takes in 50 minutes episode to send Crimson Vow off in Lords of Limited fashion. We're going to, you know, give our our hot takes, our summary of the format. And so this will be a great way to sort of wrap things up. And also, you know, if you've never played Vow before, and this is a couple years later, and they're bringing it back to Magic Arena or Magic Online or whatever, and you want to know, they're bringing it back to your local game shop, and you want to know, hey, how do you win at Crimson Vow? We direct you right to this episode, and it's a great succinct way to sort of talk about what's good, how to win, and what we uh, really took away from this format in the past couple months. So before we get into that, a few housekeeping things to take care of. First things first is the Patreon page. Patreon.com slash Lords of Limited is where folks can go to give back to the show. If they so choose, of course, the show will always be free. But we got some sweet perks over there at the Lords of Limited Patreon. And the first thing that everybody gets access to is the Discord. We're coming up on a new set. Kamigawa Neon Dynasty is going to be out. And we always say it. It bears repeating, Ben, that the Lords of Limited Discord is the best place to break a format wide open in the first few weeks of a format. So if you're looking for a great community to join of like-minded limited junkies that is the place for you a lot of other great stuff as you move up the rankings on the patreon page for the reward tiers and of course each and every week we want to welcome our new patrons to the fold this week we are welcoming in jackson grim monolith and mike thank you thank you thank you we really appreciate your support yep cannot say thank you enough Show is also brought to you by Channel Fireball, channelfireball.com. Best place to go for anything and everything you need magic related, including those Kamigawa Neon Dynasty pre-orders, baby. So when you do that over there at the new CFB Marketplace, make sure you use code LOL, all caps, at checkout to let them know that we sent you over there. I just want to reiterate how awesome Channel Fireball is in general and how much we really, really, really appreciate them including our podcast in their family. Yeah, I was just talking to uh, someone yesterday about Channel Fireball and how influential it was in my like, you know, upbringing as a magic player. You know, I've talked about this before, but I think it's just funny to say that like back in the day, like 10 years ago, I would wake up every morning, I check my email, I check Facebook, and I check channelfireball.com. It's like my morning routine every day. And I think it's just awesome to be a part of that family now. I agree. I was much the same. All right, Ben. Well, let's get into it here. We're going to put 50 minutes on the clock and run through these takes, starting off with number one, Crimson Vow is a format defined by the power and multitude of its rares and mythics. Now, we probably don't have time to run through all of these powerhouses, but things like Tox Roll the Corrosive, Ben just mentioned, Halana and Elena Partners, Wedding Announcement, Dreadfeast Demon, Averbrook Caretaker, and much more, I think are really going to be the cards and the things that people remember when they look back at Crimson Vow. You got your Hallbreaker Horrors, you got your <laughs> Catildas, you got your Glorious Sunrise, although I did yesterday beat a Wedding Announcement. Felt pretty good. Oh, yeah. Wedding Announcement, I have, I have beaten. I think, honestly, of the cards on this list, I think the card that I've never beaten is Glorious Sunrise. I just like snap. I'm just like, look, do I have a way to blow this up? Nope. It's so hard to beat that if your opponent is choosing modes correctly. I completely agree. Yeah. And we'll get to our thoughts and feelings about rares and limited a little bit later in this list. But for now, point number two, Ben. Drafting Vow is about finding the open color and colors more than it is about finding the open color pair or archetype. This is, I think, one of the biggest rules of engagement for Crimson Vow and one of the biggest pitfalls I see in coaching sessions or in draft log reviews on stream or whatever is people getting into a new color for medium commons or ending up in 
a color as their second color with, you know, five, six, seven number ranked common in that color. I think you really want to leave yourself open to the possibility of something powerful and not get, you know, tricked into, ooh, a stitched assistant, pick eight, I should be blue type deal. Right. This was, I think, my biggest level up moment in the format was that episode where we kind of just like stumbled on that organically through Mm -hmm. how you were drafting the format. And I was like, oh, I'm really not doing that. I need to try to get really deep into one color more than I am. I was just too willing to settle into a color pair in pack one. Yeah. And I I think a lot of people are because sometimes that is what you want to do. You know, if you think about a guild set like Strixhaven or even a tribal type set like Zendikar Rising, oftentimes you do want to carve out your lane or find out what the open color pair is more than an open color. But because of, you know, the the power level of the rares really did dictate a lot of, I want to hold on to this card for dear life, or I'm not seeing that power level yet, and I want to leave myself open to finding that power level in pack two or maybe even pack three. And I think a lot of people maybe fell into this trap of finding a color pair rather than locking into a color early. Yep, makes total sense. Number three, and this is perhaps one of the biggest reasons that I love this format so much, is blood is one of the best limited mechanics we've ever seen. It's insane. It gives every card in your hand cycling one. There's a point in the game where you've got five or six lands in play and four blood on the battlefield, and you know that you're drawing gas for the rest of the game. And it's such a good feeling. And as the opponent, it's such a demoralizing feeling when your opponent is in that situation. Because there's never the situation where you're like, well, if they brick and draw a land for one or two turns, maybe I can get back in the game. You just know for certain that they are finding action. Yeah, so it's a powerful limited mechanic, but it never to me felt like, overpowered and it leads to so many interesting decisions you know in deck building how much blood do you have does that make you want to play a persistent specimen or two in your deck does that make you want to run more lands in your deck because you know you can't flood if you have a lot of blood in gameplay like when are or do you want to use blood early are you you know be, just because you have the extra mana to use on turn three and a blood token are you supposed to cycle something there or you know whatever do you want run more recursive spells if you're in black type deal i just felt like it really led to to a lot of interesting decisions. And that was one of the things I liked about it. Number four, red seemed underpowered initially, but proved to be the best color in the format after just a few days. Yeah, I mean, in retrospect, it seems obvious, right? Two cheap removal spells in Bolt and a Braid. Though there is something interesting about that because some formats, a card like Flame Blessed Bolt might be whatever, you know? We've seen something like Frostbite in Kaldheim is a a similar effect, right? A one-mana red spell that deals two damage. And Frostbite had the potential to deal three if you had three or more uh, snow permanents. But that card wasn't that important or that good. Flame Blessed Bolt, that exile clause is so relevant in this format. Yes, completely. And it was also made good by the fact that there were so many good one-drops that you needed to exile. Yeah, right. You want to exile Lantern Bearer. Even sometimes you want to exile that Persistent Specimen. Traveling Minister was a problem. I mean, we'll talk about these powerhouse one drops in just a little bit. Um, but I, yeah, I think so those two red removal spells and then just so many creatures that made blood, your Voldaren Epicures, your Falconrath Celebrants, your Blood Petal Celebrant, your Belligerent Guest. I mean, it, even Belligerent Guest was sort of like whatever replaceable, but a solid card. Every time your opponent played it, you were like, I really don't want them to get that blood token. Right. Like Falconrath Celebrants, for example, looked like a D plus or something. I don't remember what grade I gave it, but it did not look like Owlbear to me. And it was better than Owlbear in the format. We just significantly <laughs> underrated how busted blood was during set review time. I think most content creators did. Yeah. And then that's not even including the like all star uncommons like Ballista Watcher, which I definitely underrated and Alluring Suitor, which was super strong. Yeah. Red was the best color in the set. And I think not perceived as such, though, even to this day. I think maybe black is still more contested more often than red is. I'd buy that for sure. Number five, green got a bad rap early on, but proved to be a good color for beating down and splashing. Well, and I think just going over the top in some senses, like there's Mm -hmm. some matchups, especially in best of one where your opponent plays Honey Mammoth 4.0 or whatever. (laughs) What's the name of the card? Flourishing Hunter. (laughs) Flourishing Hunter. And you just can't win if you're playing red once they gain four, five, six life and have that body on the battlefield. So I do think green got a bit of a bad rap as the worst color. And it was the worst color or the weakest color, but not by enough to where it was close to wanting to avoid it. It had a suite of powerhouse uncommons. It had a good curve. I think commons weren't exciting, but if you got those powerful uncommons and rares, you definitely wanted to play green. 
I mean, yeah, you were thinking about Wolf Strike is, you know, a fine removal spell, just sort of the thing that Green gets. Hookhand Mariner really, I think, overperformed or over exceeded our expectations in terms of a, you know, a four mana four four is sort of whatever these days unlimited, but that that potential to flip and then be basically unblockable against some number of decks was very real. And I think four four dodged all that red removal. Right. I mean, it was just yeah, a yeah. nice sized body in the format. Absolutely. Number six. Vow continued the trend of great one drops for limited. Yeah, I mean, we got Lantern Bearer in blue, Traveling Minister in white, Voldaren Epicure in red. Those are all great. I'm a big fan of Persistent Specimen. It's not as good as those three, but still, I think, pretty great and had its home in a lot of decks. Poor Snarling Wolf came out hot in terms of the 17 lands data. Didn't quite stick around in terms of uh, how strong it seemed. It was ha- hold the. It held the top green common spot for a little bit, but uh, no longer. Um, but yeah, four out of five ain't bad. I, I really think the shift from two drops as like the powerful thing or, you know, one drops are the same as two drops. It's just not the case anymore. And these one drops are like a really emblematic of that, uh, that sort of new tenant for limited. I think absolutely. And Snarling Wolf was better in this format than it was in mid, for sure. I mean, certainly playable in red-green aggressive decks. Absolutely. Number seven, Disturb wasn't as powerful as it was in Midnight Hunt, but it was still one of the best decks in the format. You had Brian Comer, a.k.a. Mr. Brian Comer, attorney at law. (laughs) It was just an absolute powerhouse in the deck. You know, essentially lingering souls or close to lingering souls power level, I think. And most people just didn't wrap their head around that initially in the format you had mm-hmm. storm chaser drake which slotted super well into that deck whispering wizard to make more one one flyers and it really did have multiple game plans you could clog the board and win in the air with your one one flyers you could kind of voltron a creature up there were a, a number of different strategies that attacked the format at unique angles and i think really made it one of the top tier decks and it got two really unique interesting tools that i think went super late one being nurturing presence which honestly i i was viewing as a blue white gold card for most of the format and then sort of just was like eh, any white based aggressive deck mostly red white i would be pretty happy to play that like just slapping that on your voldaren epicure on turn two was pretty darn good and, and led to some explosive starts and then cradle of safety as a way to protect that voltron style you know you you go voltron onto your storm tracer drake and then your opponent taps out for their way to kill it and you get to just go cradle of safety draw a card or you know they go to kill brian comer and you go cradle of safety make another one one and protect my big creature that was like really a a great way to close the door on your opponent right because you had so few actual cards that mattered and you knew opponents were loading up on removal to deal with all the bombs in the formats you could almost dictate when you knew your opponent was going to use a removal spell right number eight werewolves were better in this format than in the werewolf format Rest in peace, Midnight Hunt. (laughs) Crazy, right? Red Green Beats was a strong deck. I think off the back of how strong Red was. I mean, I don't know. I haven't checked the stats in a while, but I assume still that the top four best performing decks are like all red decks, basically, maybe with the exception of Blue White. Um, I think it was also you pegged this pretty early. It's harder to double spell in this format than it was in Midnight Hunt. Which is weird because there are all those crazy powerful one drops running around, but you often had those on the battlefield already by the time you needed to double spell. Right. You weren't holding them or anything like that. Yeah. Number nine, exploit was more of a package than an all in plan for a blue black deck. And I think what really, I don't know, solidified this, or I think one of the key pieces to a successful exploit deck was you really needed the one drops, the lantern bearers or the persistent specimens, or I guess a doomed dissenter as your fuel or fodder for those exploit cards, because it really did feel bad, even if you had some wretched throngs in your deck. It felt bad committing that two drop to the board and then reducing your board presence, even if you were recouping that card, essentially, by drawing the, another Wretched Throng out of your deck. I just think you you had the potential to fall behind too easily. I completely agree. I think it was better as a support shell in a blue-black control deck than it was all in blue-black exploit, for sure. And then something like Repository Scob was super awkward sometimes because like those blue-black exploit decks, you want it to be like 17, 18, 19 creatures sometimes. And then you're like, well, I guess I'm getting back my maybe one copy of Bleed Dry. Like, I don't know. It, it, it was awkward sometimes. So I think, yeah, you're right. Better as a, as a package than an all-in plan. Number 10, Green-Black Butts was more cute than good, very easily disruptible, and needed the pieces at Uncommon. How, how does that make you feel, Ben? I know this was a, a deck d- near and dear to your heart. It bums me out. That was the first deck I drafted in Crimson Vow, and it was super duper fun. I chucked some 113s at my opponent's face and one in 
very fun fashion, but I think ultimately that point stands. Bums me out that it wasn't tier one, but I loved that deck. Yeah, you needed the ancient lumber knots, the catapult fodders, the dormant groves to really make that deck tick. And even something like dormant grove, you just that was just good in any green decks. You didn't need to like build around it. And even the catapult fodder, you could find the package for it. So, you know, I I think the deck, again, could exist as a package rather than than an all in strategy. And with that, we're going to take a quick ad break and we'll be back with take number 11. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. We talk about BetterHelp a lot on this show, and this month we're discussing some of the stigmas around mental health. For example, some people think you should wait until things are unbearable to go to therapy. But that isn't true. Therapy is a tool to utilize before things get worse, and it can help you avoid those lows. And we've been taught that mental health shouldn't be a part of normal life. But that's wrong, too. We take care of our bodies with the gym, the doctor, and nutrition. We should be focusing on our minds just as much. We at Lords of Limited believe that therapy is a part of a healthy, normal lifestyle, and BetterHelp provides that service in an accessible way. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp online therapy. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Lords of Limited listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash Lords. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash Lords. And now, back to the show. All right, number 11. Black decks could grind thanks to the amount of recursion it had. You got Blood Fountain and Courier Bat to a lesser extent in terms of its consistency at Common and the ever underrated Edgar's Awakening. I-, I can't believe how underrated this card is. It's basically a free raise dead when you have blood. Yeah, absolutely premium card and you were thrilled to run it anytime you had any amount of blood in your deck. And I think the recursion aspect of black decks was one of the frustrating things about the format to me was if mm. you were playing black and had bombs and you couldn't exile your opponent's bomb, knowing that you were going to have to grind through it one or two times potentially was really tough. Yeah, you like, you know, they stick the dread feast demon, you manage to kill it, maybe even in before the trigger at their end step. But then you're looking at that blood fountain on the battlefield going, all right, so that's coming back in two turns. Cool. Right. Or they've discarded it. That happened to me yesterday. I mm-hmm. played Concealing Curtains and I made them discard their Dreadfast Demon, but they had a Blood Fountain. So we both knew that it was coming back and like, could I kill them before they got enough mana to recast their Dreadfast Demon? Just a little awkward. Yep. Number 12, Blue Red Spells was a very real deck, thanks in large part to Kessig Flame Breather. Yeah, I think that this being non-creature versus instant or sorcery was the the big deal breaker or deal maker, I guess, for this card in terms of it being able to trigger off of Disturb or off of artifacts like Knife or more importantly, Wedding Invitation because Invitation replaced itself. Like you just wanted those cantripping ways to trigger Flame Breather. And this was at its best in blue-red, but I think really could be a package in any red base deck. And shout out to you. I think you were one of the first people championing this deck. Yeah, I I was messing around with Blue Red Flame Breather, I think on day one or two or three or whatever, that first weekend for sure, figuring out Flame Breather. and, And we'll talk about Ancestral Anger as well later on in the show. Number 13, pro tip, folks. Alluring Suitor doesn't need to be attacking to transform or to use its ability on the backside, both of which are just wild to me. It is absurdly powerful. <laughs> I just drafted a deck yesterday that had like, I think it was like three Lantern Bearers, three Voldaren Epicures, and three Storm Chaser Drakes. And getting to go like one drop, two drop, Alluring Suitor, flip your Suitor, use that mana to pump in. I think people would just like so often block your Epicure with a 2-2 and then you go, okay, I'll use this mana to pump the Epicure and now trade my derpy one drop with your actual card. Or you just go, cool, post-combat, now I'm going to play a Wedding Invitation or a Flame Breather or whatever. Like, it just led to some stupid, absurd starts. Yes. Number 14, the Lords of Limited official gold uncommon power rankings. In first place, Blood Tithe Harvester. In second place, Brian Comer, Attorney at Law. Third, Wandering Mind. Fourth, Child of the Pack. Fifth, Markov Purifier. Sixth, Markov Waltzer. Seventh, Ancient Lumber Knot. Eighth, Vile Spawn Spider. Ninth, Skull Scob. And bringing up the rear, 10th, Sigardian Paladin. Poor Green White. 
Poor Green White for sure. And I think this is probably pretty emblematic of also where we would rank most of the color pairs, I would say. You know, I think Black Red in first place for me for sure, and Blue White in second place for sure. And I think Blue Red in third for sure. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. And then I think you could sort of mix around those those middle few. And then I do think like Blue Green, Blue Black, and Green White were just decks. And I think Black Green also just decks that I, I didn't want to get into very often. Right. But those top three were definitely tier one. And then there was a gap, I think. Mm-hmm. Number 15, Boarded Window was, in fact, not good. Number 16, <laughs> Dollhouse of Horrors is essentially God Pharaoh's gift. And super duper busted with exploit specifically, like just getting to bring that back for one mana, your Diver Scob, sack it to itself and then get that effect or your Rot Tide Gargantua, get get that back for one mana, sack it to itself and use it as an edict. That was really strong. Yeah, I mean, I can't believe I really underrated Dollhouse of Horrors in our set review. And then it did not take very long <laughs> playing with it to understand how broken it was. Yeah, card is ridiculous. Number 17, Ceremonial Knife and Blood Servitor as colorless blood makers did have their homes in the format. And I think, you know, I went on a pretty big journey with Knife. You know, I, there was a time that I was like, basically every deck wants to run a copy <laughs> of this. That is definitely not the case. I do think that up until the end of the format, even, even today, that Blood Servitor is pretty darn underrated. Not that it's a great card, but especially in the sense of during the draft when you're like, look, I don't want to get into a second color for this like medium common blood servitor is a great pickup for you. And in most decks, especially I think decks that care about body plus blood, those black recursive decks that want that ETB effect that want more blood blood servitor is a totally fine curve filler and knife. Also, I think in any deck that doesn't make blood easily, including a copy of knife is anywhere from fine to good. Yeah, and I think the best homes for it were where you had those one drops. You know, if you're playing a blue-white deck where turning your Lantern Bearer from a 1-1 flyer to a 2-1 flyer is big game, right? Even slapping it on like a Heron of Hope is is pretty darn good. Turning that from a 2-3 to a 3-3 that potentially gains you now 4 life if you activate it, etc., and even in a blue red deck, if you've got epicures, those that that ability to, you know, double something's power is important, you know, triggers a flame breather even. But, you know, in other decks, in green decks, ceremonial knife is not really doing the thing. Right. Number 18, persistent specimen is great in any deck that makes a lot of blood. Yeah, I, I love every time I include this card, I get a question from someone in Twitch chat saying, why, why are we playing specimen? I'm like, because it's free. Discard it to blood, baby. And then it just comes back. And then, you know, even with some, you know, you, not that you need to make these rares better, but it is repeatable sack fodder for like your Dreadfeast Demon, your Anya Made of Dishonor. It's good if you've got an exploit package in your black deck or if you're playing blue, black, etc. I think it's got synergy with a capital S on that card. I like it. Speaking of synergy, Selhoff and Tumor. Point number 19 is my most drafted common, and it does so many little things well in this format. Yeah, a 1-3 for 2 is just a good body in the format. It's got high toughness for something like Catapult Fodder to maybe have a sacrifice package in blue-black, which was definitely a thing. It's a zombie. It's got synergy with Disturb cards, so you can pitch those and immediately get the backside if you need something like a Lantern Bearer to give plus 1, plus 1 and flying instantly. It's good with Wretched Throng to pitch extra copies. It digs you towards your bombs. It just does a lot of small things well, and it's not a super high pick, but most blue decks want a copy of this card if you've got a reasonably high creature count. Yeah, I think it was a big overperformer in terms of, you know, I looked at it, it was like, this can't be good. Why would I want to discard creatures? And turned out that that came up quite a bit. Number 20, Wedding Invitation is a lot better than it looks. So it does a ton of small things well. It cantrips. It works with your Kessig Flame Breathers to do a point of damage. And in decks that want to get in a lot of chip damage early, specifically Blue Red, I think was its best home. But it essentially represented a cantripping Lava Axe later yeah. in the game for two mana, which is just absurdly powerful. With commons like Socialite or Falconrath Celebrants, it represented a four or five point life swing or i guess eight or ten point life swing if you're counting the gain as well and just like even in a green deck you could be like well i'm just gonna sneak in my flourishing hunter to finish off my opponent like the card was i think sneaky good yeah definitely c plus and should have been picked over a lot of commons mm -hmm. number 21 because of the high power of rares in the format you needed interaction Cards like Fierce Retribution, Sigarda's Imprisonment, or Grizzly Ritual, and more cards that we would often deem clunky or replaceable were important includes in your deck to be able to interact. 
I completely agree. And I think I went on a bit of a journey with removal in the format to, you know, our usual stance is removal's overrated. Mm-hmm. And then with the bombs in this format, you know, well, maybe removal's not overrated. And I was just jamming five, six, seven, eight removal spells in my deck to try to not lose to these bombs. And then I kind of realized, no, you don't need to do that. Like, you just need two, three, four solid removal spells just like normal and you don't need to pick them crazy highly just because there are bombs running around that's just the cost of doing business in the format is that sometimes you're going to lose to your opponent's bomb yeah for sure number 22 traveling minister my boy and a heron of hope was a do-it-yourself bane slayer angel I think when you think back to this format, first you'll think about all of the bombs you lost to, and then you'll think about your favorite two-card combo. It really is a warm, fuzzy feeling in my heart. Number 23, Sporeback Wolf really tied the room together for a lot of green decks. Uh, It had high toughness on your turn, um, so, you know, it it worked well with your Ancient Lumbernaut or your Fodder or your Dormant Grove. You know, you could flip a Grove pretty quickly with a Sporeback Wolf. It helped enable two of the better green uncommons that were sort of secret gold cards as well in Paxong Pup and Wolfkin Outcast, which you really wanted to do. I, I think, you know, it's just attacked well if you had a green aggressive deck. It synergized with other wolf stuff. I just think Sporeback Wolf was, I mean, it was the glue, I think, a lot of the time for green decks. It was very difficult to block early in the game unless your opponents had a 1-3. Yep. Number 24, turn one blood from Voldaren Epicure and Blood Fountain was very powerful. Yeah, I think more so from Epicure as the format went on. You know, again, with Blood Fountain, I went on a journey. I was first like, yeah, Courier Bat's better than Blood Fountain. Then I was like, nope, Blood Fountain is insane and every black deck wants <laughs> two of them. <laughs> And then I was like, ah, do I really have time to crack two blood fountains in most games of magic? No. So I went down to, you know, every black deck, I think, wants one copy of blood fountain. That's about it. Um, but I do think that turn one blood just really it just smoothed out your hand to let you keep one land hands on the play. Sometimes if you just were like, well, I've got a bunch of two drops. So if I draw land, great. And if not, I have something to do with that mana on turn two. So reducing mulligans was very good. I just think turn one blood. So good. Well, and especially if you had ways to use the Voldaren Epicure body later in the game, like you had some exploit cards, like maybe you had the Scorpion that lets you sack it to draw two cards or things along those lines. If you had ways to make it relevant, it was especially busted. Agreed. Number 25, training was a pretty big dud of a limited mechanic. It's hard to have an aggressive mechanic like like training, right? Something that you can only trigger by attacking that is inherently paired with low powered creatures, right? Three mana one fours, three mana two one flyers, two mana one twos that are just really bad if you're not on the play. And also if the game is dictating you not being the aggressor. Right. Well, and I was thinking about this because it's sort of similar to mentor, right? I was literally just thinking about this a few days ago. Mm -hmm. Why was this such a flop and mentor was so good? And if they had put training on something like you know, a 1-1 flying lifelink, training would have been busted, but they didn't put the training on the cards that you wanted to grow. They put training on super derpy, like one twos and two threes. They didn't put training on evasive creatures. And those were the kind of creatures that needed training. Right. And well, they did. They put it on two evasive creatures, but like a three mana, two, one flyer. And then the four mana, two, two uncommon flyer. It's just, they're just too small ball for limited, I think. Yes. Number 26, the Golden Egg Award goes to Traveling Minister. That's back-to-back white one-drop wins for the Golden Egg Award, Ben. I'm feeling good about it. Love both of those cards. I think, uh, you know, honorary mention to Gluttonous Guest and Wedding Invitation. But I think at the end of the day, Traveling Minister really just every white deck No matter what flavor of it, if you were doing like white, black, grindy life gain to just white, red aggro, every deck wanted as many ministers as you could get your hands on. Absolutely. Number 27, cards that care about blood but don't make blood themselves are not good. And I am looking right at you, Wedding Security and Blood Hypnotist. Yeah, both of those cards were just maximum awkward. Blood Hypnotist, especially not being able to block, just made it largely unplayable. I think Wedding Security was playable, but super replaceable. Yeah, I think I've played Wedding Security. A lot of stuff had to line up right in terms of you had to make a lot of blood and you also had to not have basically Falconrath Celebrants, right? You had to have other stuff not competing at the five drop slot to be like, yeah, I can actually include Wedding Security in my deck. So came up sometimes, but rarely. Number 28, the Wraths in the format by Invitation Only and Path of Peril were largely underperformers. I think, 
you could make a case for by invitation only doing strong work in a disturbed deck where you didn't feel bad about committing to the board early and then going, oh, actually, now I'm going to sweep things up. But I think these cards were overrated and overplayed. Five mana and six mana wraths, your opponent can just do so much damage to you before you can drop those. And so you have to commit to the board at some point. And that just makes these cards super awkward. Fair enough. Number 29, Hero's Downfall, downshifted from rare, was worse than its uncommon counterpart, Parasitic Grasp, and common removal spell, Bleed Dry. I was just streaming yesterday, and I picked Parasitic Grasp over Hero's Downfall, and Twitch chat lost their minds. And I was like, just stay with me, listen to the Lords of Limited episode, you'll see what's (laughs) going on. And every time it came up in gameplay, and I had Hero's Downfall, I was like, hmm, I sure wish I was gaining three life while I was killing this three toughness creature. I mean, yes, like Hero's Downfall kills some things that Parasitic Grasp doesn't. But I think the three life is relevant way more often or the ability to potentially cast it for one in a black is relevant way more often than it is. You need to be able to nab anything because you just wanted bleed dry if you were trying to nab anything. Yeah, a a flipped ragged recluse just felt so good to be able to snap it off for one in a black to deal three to that thing and get it off the board. Number 30. There are a lot of secret gold cards in the format. So watch out for cards like Paxong Pup, Secret Red Green Gold Card, Bioloom Egg as a Secret Blue Black Gold Card, Heron Blessed Geist, definitely a Blue White Gold Card. So there's a lot of things that just only want to slot in one deck that are single colored. And again, I think all three, or at least those first two, were cards I went on, again, a journey with. Paxong Pup, I was like, this really pulls me into green. And then I was like, actually, it's really hard to make this work consistently outside of red green. Same with Egg. I was like, oh, this is like one of the top performing uncommons in the set. I was like, outside of blue black, this is actually really hard to make work. Like, sure, you can get stitched assistance, repository scobs, or diver scobs and just do a blue package with it. But that's a lot harder than you think. Completely agree. Number 31, Gift of Fangs was a necessary evil if you lacked early interaction, but it was awkward since it was dead, basically, against the best deck. I had a no playing Gift of Fangs <laughs> policy for myself after the first week of the format. Because, because not, you were targeting vampires? Not once, but twice I targeted my opponent's vampires. So beware if you're coming back to the format. Um, I did successfully cast it a couple of times later in the format after I had thoroughly pounded into my brain that I could not <laughs> use it on vampires. But yeah, tough card. Shout out to you, buddy. Shout out to you. Number 32. There was actually a steal and exploit deck in the format. So it was blue, red or red, black. If you could get the late bloody betrayals, that was the act of treason variant that lets you get a blood token. And then you also needed some mine leech ghouls in black as sack outlets or stitched assistance in blue as sack outlets at common. And then you could steal your opponent's creature and then play your exploit creature and sacrifice it to get the value. It was pretty powerful. And all three of those cards, the Betrayals, the Ghouls, and the Assistants, they went pretty late. And so this wasn't like a plan A deck for sure, probably not even a plan B deck. <laughs> but it was something that like if if things weren't going well in the draft, but these colors were open or you were finding your way into these colors, those are cards you could get pretty late and you could assemble that combo. A couple of the, the Steel cards and then, you know, three or four of the cheap exploiters. That was a game plan for sure. Number 33, Vile Spawn Spider plus Screaming Swarm could mill your opponent out of nowhere. This was just a really cool alternate axis way to win for the blue green decks. Yeah, I lost to it several times in the format, and every time I lost to it, my opponent's deck was super sweet. Like, you couldn't even be mad about it. Yeah, no, not at all. Number 34, don't worry, you actually can't deck yourself with a Ruth Tormented Prophet. Yeah, so this is one blue-red for 2-4. It says, uh, if you would draw a card, instead you exile the top two cards of your library, and you can play those cards this turn. So you can't deck yourself, because if you would draw, you instead do this other thing that exiles, so you actually can't deck yourself, so don't worry. Have you been there? Oh, I've been there, baby. I've I've also been there. Feels good. (laughs) Number 35, Hallowed Haunting was a really sweet build around for a blue white deck. I think this card looked kind of clunky, but it was actually very, very real and pretty darn easy if blue white disturb was open for your seat. I literally never saw this card on the battlefield all format, never drafted it and never played against it. I'm not surprised that you never played against it. I think I only played against it a few times. And, you know, it's hard to to make work in terms of you got to see it early and blue white has to be open for your seat. Um, and I think a lot of people thought the card was like strictly unplayable. Oh, no, I th- certainly think it was powerful. Just narrowly powerful, right? Indeed. Yeah. 
Number 36, Massive Might is one of the best combat tricks we've seen in a while. It it was just so impossible to, I mean, you can't really play around it. And it often just left you in these spots where you would go, well, if they have it, I'm dead. So I effectively have to assume they don't have it. It's one of the better ways for green to push damage and close out games. Certainly a reason that green aggressive decks were viable if they were viable at all. Yeah, and the and the delta, I think I think they were sort of grouped together, but the delta between massive might and witch's web was was, I mean, and not to no pun intended, was massive. <laughs> Completely agree. Number 37, Vow may have the highest number of cards I've either never cast in a limited format or like cast once, saw once, and decided, nope, this is really bad. Like just so when we do these 50 takes, I basically just pull up the full visual spoiler of all the cards and just go through it to, to get as many ideas as possible. And I was blown away by the number of cards that I was like, this is terrible. And this is terrible. Like Allenbach escort into the night, arm the Cathars, soul cipher board, blood sworn squire, magma pummeler, groom's finery, bride's gown, skulking killer. Like there's so many clunkers in this set. Oh, you haven't lived. I've played at least half of those cards. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh dear. Oh dear. Arm the Cathars is not terrible. I've played Arm the Cathars. Blood Sworn Squire, I think. That's the 3-3 three, three black one, right? That uh -huh. can, you can play one on a black discard card. That card is situationally really good, I think. I've seen that one played a lot, and I've played it. Skulking Killer, I played once and decided never again. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I knew it was bad, but I needed a playable. And uh, turns out that was not a playable. Four mana, four two. Yeah, you can play as many basic lands as you want in a limited deck. And Magma Pummeler, like, not great, but, like, is playable if these cards are not good <laughs> maybe, maybe this is why you're losing to so many rares ben <laughs> never 38 blue green <laughs> suffered from its lack of interaction yeah so it had wolf strike which was fine and like blue did give it diver scob and lunar rejection which were ways to deal with creatures but not in a real permanent fashion so i think you know these decks largely wanted to play out like aggro decks, or maybe you could just super duper clog the board until you got that combo kill with the spider and the screaming swarm. Yeah, I think that was more the plan of clogging yeah. the board out. That that was how I felt blue green did it the best, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Number 39, we thought blood meant you could run more situationally powerful cards but that was wrong. Like, you just didn't have time to be like, I'm going to play end the festivities in my deck or aim for the head. And if it's the right time for that card, great. And if not, I want to pitch it to blood. Like, you still wanted to have all of your cards be impactful in your deck. Yes, there were just a lot of good cards in the format. And you were supposed to play as many of the good cards as you possibly could. For sure. Number 40. Depending on who you are here, the appropriate <laughs> number of wretched throngs to play was three. In my opinion, you would probably say zero, right? Well, no, you know what? I, I did come around to this card. Uh, you know, I, it wasn't a, a card that I was excited about by any means. But honestly, I think two to three. I, I would play two uh, a, a lot of the time, just as a little, you know, if I needed to fill out my two drop slot, whatever. That wasn't embarrassing. When you got to four, you were just so likely to draw another copy of it before, you know, you could catch them all or whatever, or have one die that like, and, and a two mana two one drawing it later just felt really bad. So I agree. I'd, I'd say two to three. Love it. Number 41, Diagraph Scavenger did it all, baby. Life gain, death touch, higher toughness, and most importantly, graveyard hate. Yeah, really, especially coming off of Midnight Hunt, where there was a lot of graveyard hate, almost no graveyard hate in this format. And Diagraph Scavenger felt like the right balance to me. Like, it definitely felt bad, especially if you were in blue-white disturb, and they nab your lantern bearer after you make a block with it, thinking you could play the lantern's lift next turn or whatever. Or, you know, if you're in a black recursive deck and they nab your bomb. Like, I think Diagraph Scavenger was, it was maybe not even push just like super strong but not like overly so yeah it was very rock solid and it was also a great creature to recur with your own uh -huh. blood fountains and things like that and get that life gain trigger again and the drain i think it was just very solid yeah and, and it could just like close out games sometimes like you just get your like your opponent stabilizes but then diagraph scavenger or or a second one are able to get those last points of damage yeah really really solid card Number 42, Falconrath Celebrants was the perfect curve topper for any red deck. It's Owlbear, baby. It's absurd. It's better than <laughs> Owlbear somehow. It's only four and a single red. If you needed to, I've splashed Falconrath Celebrants as a finisher yeah. before. If I was desperate, you know, it just does so much. 
Well, especially because Red can do such a good job of clearing the board of like the smaller creatures that when Celebrants hits, because it has menace, you know, it's not crazy for it to hit the board and your opponent only have one threat in play. And so then what are they supposed to do? Are they supposed to not attack? Maybe they can play a second thing or maybe they play a third thing. But then what if you have removal and you get to push four? Like it represents a big clock. Yeah, it was borderline B level threat, like B minus B. It felt like an uncommon threat coming down every time your opponents cast it like, oh, that's a huge problem. And two blood that late in the game just meant ditch two lands, which is very strong. Yep. Number 43, Bramble Worm has reach. Number 44, blue green decks want to have an extraordinarily high creature count. Yeah. So talk to me about this. I think this was maybe championed by Sam Black, I think early in the format about how to construct blue green decks. So you're just trying to clog the board here, you think? Or are these blue green creature decks also able to push damage maybe in the air? How do these decks work? Well, I think it's just a lot due to Vile Spawn Spider. You really want to be milling creatures for cards like that. Crawling Infestation, I think, is actually playable mm. in these blue green decks so that you're getting one ones as often as possible. And then you just want to clog the board up and then you can win with giant blue flyers or your lantern bearers dying and putting them on your large blue green creatures. It's just a really solid plan. And the the blue and green interactive spells weren't good. So if you leaned into those cards that cared about creatures, I think that really was the way to make blue green decks tick. Just go big. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I think blue green was one of the decks I came to last in the format. I was really off of it early on, found my way into it a few times. I think it was a good home for splashing as well as blue green often is. Um, But yeah, you definitely wanted high teen creature counts in, in this color pair. Number 45, Vow was the format for the first ever draft open on Arena, and it was super sweet. Yeah, I had a blast playing and preparing and competing in this thing, mm-hmm. even if we fell short of the cash. Like, just competitive high stakes, whether it's sealed deck or draft, is awesome, and the fact that it was draft this time around was incredible. I felt super prepared, and I just love competing like that. Yeah, I, I look forward to more of these events for sure. They're they're just so, so awesome. And it ran pretty darn smooth. I feel like we thought it was going to take a long time for us to get these kind of, oh, how are we going to do these draft tournaments on Arena? Do we have to have like people in multiples of eight? What happens if pods don't fill? And, you know, I felt like the, you know, just draft with the normal player base and then play your decks against other people in the open. That worked out totally fine. Yeah, and I think the fact that this was an asynchronous tournament yeah. It's also incredible. Like I had stuff that weekend. If this had been a GP, I wouldn't have been able to go, but I was able to kind of rejigger, you know, my games and my drafts and my matches around the responsibilities at school that I had. Yeah, I was on vacation in Chicago that weekend. And on Saturday morning, I was able to play on my phone. Shout out to Arena Mobile. I was able to queue on for day two on my phone uh, while I was away from my computer. So huge props, Wizards and Arena. Thank you for the draft Arena Open. Yep. Number 46, Bleed Dry is overrated there. I said it. So talk to me about this one. What, so we said earlier, right? We said removal is super important because of the bombs. But now we're saying that one of the, you know, this removal spell, not only does it kill anything dead, it exiles it too, but it's overrated? Overrated. No, it doesn't mean it's not good. Just, I mm-hmm. think, overrated and overvalued slightly. I think... Black's pretty contested. And if you're drafting black because you have a couple copies of Bleed Dry, I think that's a bad recipe because you're just going to lose to a lot of decks that have threats like, you know, blue white laughs at a deck full of Bleed Dries or blue red laughs at a deck full of Bleed Dries. And sure, it's going to nab your opponent's bomb, but you have to have the Bleed Dry in your hand when your opponent casts the bomb and you have to have the mana to cast it and the right timing, you know, you might even need to have the mana up for the bleed dry at instant speed in the case of some of the rares. So I think you want some bleed dries, but I think going over the top to try to have bleed dry in your deck is not where you want to be. It's, it's a solid B minus B in the format. Great card, but I think there are a lot of other better cards and I don't think you necessarily need to get locked into the idea that you have to be drafting black because you've got a bleed dry. Totally fine to abandon your bleed dries and pivot into other colors. It's almost better in decks where you also have the bombs. And I think that's partially because of what black provides in the format with Toxril and Demon and Blood Vile Purveyor, etc. 
But the bleed dry helps you get to those cards, right? It deals with something problematic that threatens to stop you from finding your impactful spells. But if you don't get those impactful spells in the draft, you're so much more incentivized if you have to comprise a deck of, you know, commons and good uncommons. You're so much more incentivized to be an assertive deck, especially with how good the one drops are in this format and how good one drops are in limited these days in general. That like you want to just be pressuring your opponent. And sure, a bleed dry can be good in terms of, you know, they're gonna stabilize and you get this thing out of the way, whatever. But you would just much rather have low curve assertive pressure cards than something like a bleed dry. Right. That's the thing. I think your tendency is to build a control deck around bleed dry, and it's just way better to be proactive than reactive in the format. Number 47, Infestation Expert and Dormant Grove look kind of mediocre at first glance or slow or understated. I don't know, but they are just solid B-level strong pulls into green. I love both of those cards. Infestation Expert. It's Grave Titan. Yeah, it's really good. <laughs> it's I mean, so good. It's not that big of a stretch. It just stabilizes so well and attacks so well if it comes down ahead of schedule. You know, green has the ability to play it on turn four. And if you land that card on turn four, it's a giant yikes for your opponent. Giant yikes, if it happens to have attacks or you can back up its attacks or the massive might or witch's web or whatever, if you've already flipped it tonight and it comes down as a four five and you make two one ones and dormant grove is just awesome. Like that, that dormant grove is just awesome. It's powerful. And I think also is tough to play in the sense of, do I want to keep this around as an enchantment for as long as possible, buffing my creatures? Or do I want to turbo flip this as fast as possible? Or is it somewhere in between? I feel like a lot of those choices were very interesting. Number 48, Cleave was just kicker that required more brain power to process. Yeah, I mean, the fact that this was mostly on rares, like I guess a few uncommons had it, this just didn't come up for limited that much. And it wasn't that tough. It didn't take that long to just sort of like tweak your brain about how to like read and interpret these cards. But during spoiler season, boy, howdy, you'd have thought the sky <laughs> was falling. Oh there my were, God. There were memes flying about how terrible the templating on Cleave was. And it was awkward. I would admit I did not like it during the first week or whatever. But after a week, my brain kind of adjusted and I knew how to process the cards. Number 49, Ancestral Anger was actually a playable to good collect them all. I think maybe, again, folks went on a bit of a journey with thinking this was terrible and then like taking these like third pick or whatever because of the Flame Breather deck. I think the the secret was somewhere in the middle, especially in a blue red deck. I thought these were, were quite good. Um, but even like, you know, you could just just cantripping and, and digging towards other stuff and then wham, bam, you get plus three, plus O oh, and trample. I mean, it was a strong card i think the journey that i went on was <laughs> that i learning that wedding invitation was better than this I, ah. I would have thought like this was better in the blue red deck and then once i started to realize how good wedding invitation was wedding invitation is just much better than ancestral anger in the blue red deck i think one of the reasons is wedding invitation you can just play on turn two and cantrip and with ancestral anger it was a little bit more awkward like you needed a target are you gonna like use it to target your opponent's stuff just to cantrip and invitation just felt a lot better i agree number 50 we got a two-parter here i'll kick us off Vow rares are the worst. I think Vow rares are the best. Not just Vow rares in particular, but I just think I would prefer to play a limited format where the rares are powerful and the commons are mostly flat than vice versa. Wow. <laughs> I mean, do you want to? I feel like I've already had a platform to talk about my opinion on this. Do you want to, you know, sort of state your feelings about this? Yeah, I think it just sort of, I feel like my edge as a drafter gets mitigated when the commons are flat because I think one of the things I do best as a drafter is bob and weave and pivot and find the open color and when the commons are flat and you realize you're supposed to pivot to red white or whatever away from blue green or red green then sometimes you just don't get paid off if you don't see the powerful cards whereas if the power levels concentrated at common and uncommon you're much more consistently rewarded i think for pivoting and finding the open lane yeah and my feeling is that drafts become very samey over and over again and so i think this is different for someone who drafts you know 20 25 times in a format versus you know 100 150 times in a format of like if the commons are where the power is then the drafts are going to be the same more often and the gameplay is going to be the same more often you know you know if you face a black opponent, they're going to have cards X, Y, and Z or whatever, and you're going to have to deal with that. Whereas 
the rares being powerful change the drafts in terms of how much am I supposed to hold on to this thing or build around it or whatever. And then it also creates, I think, more dynamic, but certainly more swingy games. But because of the amount that I get to play, I feel like that gets mitigated and that variance isn't doesn't feel too bad to me. But I, I recognize that that comes from a place of, I guess, privilege or whatever from being able to play so much. No, yeah, I think... And it's super interesting, right, that mid and Val were such polar opposites because I yes. think mid leaned about all the way as far as you could in terms yeah. of the the power level being a common and uncommon too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And that's just like, it was cool. It's cool to have, oh my God, Organ Hoarder is nuts. It's like an A minus level card. Uh, but then it just feels sort of bad. I've sort of, I've equated this before to like, it's like drafting Vintage Cube where you're like, there's this cool build around, but I have to take a mox. That's sort of what organ hoarder felt like it's like i would love to play this cool rare but it's probably just worse than this common and i just don't like that in terms of limited yeah that's fair i i think my gut reaction to losing to cards like halana elena my visceral reaction is strong enough that i will (laughs) if there are this many rares and mythics that i it is not good for me (laughs) yeah i i it's so hard for me to like I think convince anyone that doesn't feel the way that I do because that emotional response is so strong and so visceral that uh, to losing to those cards that I just think people are going to say, nope, Val's not for me. I wish that these rares weren't so busted. So maybe double feature is going to be the perfect mix here. I don't know. We'll see. I, I, I'm i skeptical of double feature. I've been skeptical of things before and been wrong. So I'm, you know, I'm going to go into it with an open mind. But I'm, I'm generally just skeptical of like two limited formats that weren't meant to be played together, being played together, being anything other than clunky. Yeah, I think we'll see. We'll see. I'm, I'm going to be playing it because, yeah, you know, I think, you know, Val's gone. Val is on the outs. Cube is gone. So I'll be playing double feature for the week that it's up. And we'll certainly talk about it next week when we're also talking about the Neon Dynasty previews that are out. Yeah, looking forward to that for sure. Sweet. All right. Great place to wrap us up here. Thank you, as always, to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give it a listen. Thank you so much to ChannelFireball.com for sponsoring this podcast. If you're heading over to CFB for any and all purchases or signing up for CFB Pro, please use the code LOL when you check out to let them know we sent you there. You can check us out streaming. I'm at twitch.tv slash Lord Tupperware. Ben is at twitch.tv slash Mr. Metronome. Mr. is spelled out. You can also tweet at us on those same usernames, and you can tweet at the podcast at Lords of Limited. If you've got any feedback about the show or any questions, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. Thanks, everybody. See you later. You sure you're good? <laughs> I'm just like you are drinking Mountain Dew. <laughs> Clear in your throat quite a bit, sir. I, I feel like I have something in my throat. I'm trying to be professional and make sure we get off on the right foot. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> I was just about ready and now I'm not again. <laughs>